1: Hi, everybody, and welcome to today's Talking Biotech podcast by Calabra. Now, there's no question that the most dangerous and damaging animals on the planet are insects. Top of the list. From spreading infectious disease to overnight devastation of crops, insects cause massive losses in human health. They threaten food security and contribute in a big way to agricultural losses on the farm as well as food waste. So for more than half a century, scientists have used sterile insect technique to limit deleterious populations. It's a pretty easy concept. You capture or raise a bunch of insects like mosquitoes, and then you treat them with radiation. You break chromosomes, you scramble, scramble genetics, whatever. Lots of them die. But the ones that survive can be released and then introduced into a resident population, which are typically invasive insects. So you you, you introduce the defective dead-end genetics to mate with the ones you wish to suppress. The next generation is not as viable, and populations usually decline. Now, all of this is good, but today, instead of using radiation and random damage of DNA, we can use much more surgical techniques. And in the past, maybe a couple years, we've talked about this, Different transgenic techniques have been implemented. We've talked about them on the podcast. Mosquitoes, fall armyworm, diamondback moth, really, really great innovations. But a recent paper took an innovative approach using gene editing to suppress the levels of an agricultural pest. We'll talk to a representative from that project today. And on today's podcast, our guest is Dr. Nikolai Kondul. He's a project scientist in the Cell and Developmental Biology Department at the University of California, San Diego. So welcome to the podcast, Dr. Kondul. Hello, everybody. Yeah, so the work that you did and your team did, Really revolved around a creature called Drosophila suzukii, and more commonly known as spotted wing Drosophila. Drosophila means a lot to some people, but not to others. So, what is this thing in common terms, and why is it a problem?
2: Yeah, Drosophila suzukii is relatively closely related to Drosophila melanogaster, which is essentially a lab workforce for many scientists. For has been a lab lab workhorse for more than 120 years, but it's Drosophila species. It's native from Southeast Asian, Asia region, but it's a, it's a crop pest. So it makes close phylogenetic connections to Drosophila milnogastra, makes it a very good object because we can test system in Drosophila milnogastra. And then we can port them into Drosophila suzuki and see if they actually work in the pest species, like we did in I with our system.
1: Yeah, and so the the big question I was kind of getting there is how would people recognize this? And this is really just a a relative of the fruit fly. This is a kind of fruit fly, correct? Correct. Yeah, and so you're in Southern California. So why is this a big problem for farmers and for different industries? This species is, as
2: I said, native for Southeast Asia, but in 2018, it was spotted in Hawaii and essentially settled in Hawaii. And... In 2008, it was essentially found here in California. Yes. And then in 2010, it spread to Oregon and Washington state. And in 2012, it's essentially almost everywhere in the U.S., including Florida. And because it's drosophila species, the life cycle is relatively short. And in Japan, during the summertime, you can have 13 generations of drosophila Suzuki. So. That makes it very prolific and a very bad path because it's propagated so fast. And it's essentially different from Drosophil neonagaster because females of Drosophil Suzukii, they have serrated ovipositor. With that ovipositor, they can insert the eggs into what is called soft skin summer berries, like cherries, blueberries, raspberries, blackberries, peaches, nectarines, a lot of. And because they can
1: propagate so fast, giving short life cycle, they are very hard to deal with. Yeah, we have them here in Florida and there are substantial issues, with, especially in strawberries. Seeing more and more in blueberries, where spotted wing drosophila is a formidable pest and farmers are constantly monitoring and sometimes treating when they see it. It's really become a a battle. And so how has this been traditionally managed on the farm?
2: It's hard to say because, I mean, it's relatively recent problem in California since 2008. But right now, farmers use traps to trap them and monitor. And if they see substantial infestation, they essentially have to use pesticide. Insecticides and they try to use them kind of in the morning, then pollinators are still not available. That's when the flies are actively searching, like female flies actively searching for fruits to lay eggs. But it's uh, you have to spread pesticides, then you have fruits already ripening, and that's a
1: big problem. Yeah, so you see the many different angles here. You're spraying fruit when it's ripe, which you know consumers are not thrilled about. You're also putting pesticides into the environment during a time when. Pollinators can be active. is something else we don't like to do. So what we really need is a better solution to do this. And maybe sterile insect technique. So we've talked about sterile insect technique on the podcast as it relates to things like fall armyworm, to mosquitoes, to diamondback moth. And how has sterile insect technique been used traditionally? And can you explain that process? Yeah, so sterile insect technique was used in the U.S. since
2: 1950s and probably the most canonical species where sterile insect technique was used most effectively. It's a new world schoolworm fly. That fly essentially was devastating cattle industry. That's a fly which essentially lay eggs in the skin of cows and then egg will hatch and larvae will burrow into the live tissue of the cows. And will eat that live tissue until it develops and leaf, And so it was obviously a big problem and they were common for southern states in US and downwards, all Central America and South America. And I think in 1930s, it was the first time when Serebrovsky back in Russia started thinking that if you release. Sufficient number of sterile insects into a population, those insects will mate, and then you have a lot of eggs which don't hatch, and you will have some way to suppress population. And then that essentially theoretical research was picked up in the US and it was applied for New World School flies. And yeah. essentially how it's done, you must rear these flies in the factories. Then you irradiate those flies in a scuba fly at the pupil stage. You use radiation essentially to sterilize males. And then ideally you also want to remove females and then release this huge number of sterilized sex-sorted males in the local population. Then these males will be in a local population. They will search and mate with wild-type females. Those females will lay X to the hatch because males were sterile. And and essentially, if you do that at mass, you can suppress population at the local level. And that's how this technology was used to essentially eradicate new world-schooling flies in the U.S. And then down to the border, US reach agreement with Mexico and then they start releasing these sterilized males in Mexico. And then essentially they move that border where they suppress them down to all Central America. And still nowadays, every week around 12 million sterilized pupils will be spread over tropical forests on the border with Colombia and Panama to prevent any Reintroduction with these screwworm flies back into Northern America.
1: Well, I didn't know that. That's really interesting. So every week they're releasing irradiated screwworm larvae to essentially block the movement of the of the normal screwworms back into North America.
2: Yeah, and they're releasing like at the pupal stage. So that's kind of one biological feature which made screwbone flies kind of ideal system for sterile insect techniques because pupal stage at that flight have a like double double coat, it's very robust. And then essentially they just draw force pupil in the forest. Then they hatch as males and all males do is to search for females. Another big interesting thing, feature about that species is that females of his human flies, they mate only once in a lifetime. So that means if a wild type virgin female will mate with sterilized male, that female will become sterilized for life.
1: Yeah, that's a really important part of the technology. Can you talk a little bit about the other species where the sterile insect technique has been done using molecular suppression of fertility. So, you know, we have other episodes that have been recorded. People can go back in the archives. But in general, this has been done using different molecular techniques, not necessarily gene editing. And can you just touch on that briefly? Like, you know, what else has been done?
2: I mean, essentially, you you can sterilize males also with some chemicals. That was also done back in 70s. And then there is also some other system, genetic system, where you overexpress a tetracycline response element that overexpression will essentially mess up translational activation of multiple proteins, and then organism can die. And then if you insert female-specific intron into coding sequence of his gene, that's work was Max Scott from North Carolina State University. They also developed a system for spotted winter zone. And then you have a system where you can maintain your line, feeding tetracycline in the lab. And then once you stop feeding tetracycling, they're developing, um, like eggs will develop into the males. Males will be normal, but all females will die during development. And then you can also release those males into the environment and they will kind of propagate that gene. But that gene will only affect females. And that's one way to do it. And similar, similar system was used also by Oxitec for a second generation of friendly males, which Oxitec now releasing in Florida, where they again release transgenic males, males infertile. They pass these genes into the next generation. And in that next generation, every female which will inherit that gene one or two corpus will die during development.
1: Yeah, so it's really an intricate process. It's taken on a couple of different forms, but the basic idea is to induce some sort of lethality that can be passed on, but can be turned off in the laboratory. So at the pupil stage or at the the larval stage, you can turn off this lethality using tetracycline, but then when you release them into the environment, they go out and, and mate and reproduce, but then... Future generations are not viable. And so this is a really effective way to do this. But the way that your laboratory and your group, the folks in your group have done this is a little bit different. So can you begin to describe how is using gene editing going to make this process a little bit different and maybe more specific?
2: Yeah, and I should say it's not so much gene editing, it's more gene destruction or gene mutagenesis. So essentially, we were scientists, so we were very excited about CRISPR technology, and we were even more excited that CRISPR technology was suggested as a way to create gene drives where um uh, Essentially, a gene can propagate itself, and if you add additional gene, which will piggyback on these self-propagating genes, you can kind of change wild-type populations of insects, and maybe make mosquitoes resistant to diseases, which wild-type mosquitoes generally transmit. And we've been kind of teasing about this system, and I have a background in speciation, and relatively soon I realized that the gene drives are kind of prone to failure, at least right now. Because it's, uh, they have to work against natural selection. Gene drives how they spread. They essentially cut a specific sequence and then they have to insert themselves based on the homology. And then they're very effective at cutting, but they're not very effective at inserting because mistakes will happen. Sometimes these cut regions will be patched by itself with, and then will be changed and then they become resistant to future cutting. And that's how you create these resistance alleles. And we've been playing a lot with this system. And then we just realized that we really don't need to make gene drives. We can essentially separate Cas9 into one line, which now we can propagate because Cas9 by itself is just a molecular scissors, but it's not active without guide RNA, which will guide these scissors to a specific location. And then in the other line, we'll express multiple guide RNAs and again that line can be brain separately and then homozygonist. But then we have these two lines, we cross them together, and then we have progeny. And in the progeny, if then guide RNA will come into contact with Cas9, it will become active. And if we strategically target genes like at least two genes. One of the gene has to be important for female viability. So that gene is targeted. Essentially it's destroyed. It's cut. And then females will die or in some way be selected during the development. And then second gene would be important only for male fertility. And in our case, it's a beta tubulin gene important for sperm elongation. <clears throat> so essentially during development, again, all the males will be sterilized. And that's how we came up with the idea that we can have precision guided sterilization typically. precision guided because we essentially destroying or knocking down two genes very highly specifically. One important for female viability; the other important for male fertility. And this kind of knockout happens during the entire development. Then these F1 egg develop into adult, and then the end product, adult, would be only male, and it will be completely sterile.
1: Okay, so let me just make sure I have this right. You have one line of of Drosophila that are containing the Cas9, so the enzyme that does the cutting. So you have the scissors in one. In the other one, you tell the scissors where to cut. So either one by itself doesn't have any phenotype. Both of them on their own are simply carrying the enzyme or the the instructions on where it should cut. And when you bring them together in the next generation, now you have the molecular scissors plus instructions on where to cut the genome. And it's targeted towards specific genes that are important for development or cundity or, or I guess you'd say fertility. so so fertility in males and lethality in females. so you have no females that can reproduce, and males that now can go out and occupy the fertile females of a population and ensure that they don't mate against fertile males. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> I just want to make sure I have it before we move forward because it it seems like a really neat approach that takes the normal sterile insect technique, you know, one or two steps further, which is which is really good. And do you have you seen some good evidence that when you use this kind of technique that you strongly suppress a native population? We have we have some lab studies where we test it. First of
2: all, maybe I should step down and explain why sterile insect technique. Um uh, worked for some species it didn't work for another species. And one reason, because you're using radiation, right? And then you sterilize the males, but you're also affecting fitness of those males. So then you release these kind of not fit males. They are not really competing very well with wild type males or wild type females. So that's why you have to add them at a huge ratios, like 10 sterilized males at the minimum to one wild type male. The second problem is, it's especially about mosquitoes. Mosquitoes, for example, if you want to use sterilization technique for mosquitoes, they are very fragile. You essentially can sterilize them, suck them, but then you still have to release them somewhere, and you. That means you have to build these huge factories right where you plan to release the males, because you could not ship them far away. They are essentially very fragile at the at adult stage, surprisingly. So. And it's very costly also to separate females. You have to remove them because if you don't separate them, males essentially will be mating with females and they will not be so kind of eager to mate the wild type females and the efficiency of your suppression will decrease. Then we made our system. The whole promise was that we're knocking out two genes extremely specifically. And we expected that our males will be extremely fit. And we built this system as proof of principle in Drosophila melanogaster. And the biggest surprise was that our PGSAT Drosophila melanogaster males were living 60% longer than wild males. Exactly the same genetic background. So it's quite costly for Drosophila melanogastria to develop sperm. So, but this also shows that they're very fit and we also done some competition and say where our males were competing with wild-type males for mates and with females. And they were very competitive. And then we also build this system in Aedes aegypti in yellow fever mosquito and essentially confirm that our, again, our males in case of mosquitoes, they were leaving exactly, they have the same longevity. They have all the same fitness and they also very competitive. So that's, that's one huge benefit of precision-guided sterilization technique. Some other benefits, they are more species specific. Then we developed this system. We actually had our eyes for mosquitoes, specifically for Aedes aegypti because that invasive species, it's invasive because desiccated eggs of Aedes aegypti can hatch one or five years later. So that's how it's spread everywhere. But what it means for us, for us, it means if we can have these lines in Edith Egypt we cross them in the lab in California, we generate huge number of eggs because we have surplus. we're sorting parents for the cross, but then every female will lay 200 or 400 eggs. So we're making at least 100 eggs more kind of thing to deploy in a wild type, plus in the in mosquitoes, we can move these eggs logistically anywhere in the world. That basically was our motivation for, for precision-guided sterile technique. And that's kind of probably the main major benefit of precision-guided sterile technique.
1: So we're talking with Dr. Nikolai Kondul. He's a scientist at the University of California, San Diego. And we're talking about new breakthroughs in sterile insect technique, namely using gene editing as a disruptive measure to sterilize insects that are invasive and have problems in agriculture. So this is the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll be back in just a moment.
0: This episode is brought to you by Collabra, the data monitoring platform designed to reveal research insights and streamline reporting across your organization. With Collabra, you'll gain a comprehensive view of your research workflows, Simplifying scientific IP governance, compliance, and analysis. Visit Collabra.app to learn how you can transform your research process today. C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot Now we're back on the Talking Biotech podcast.
1: We're speaking with Nikolai Kondul. He's a project scientist at the University of California, San Diego, who's been working with precision-guided sterile insect technique. And we, in the previous segment, we talked about what this technique is and what are some of its advantages over traditional sterile insect technique. And I guess we do have to really think about what are the risks and what are the risks of this kind of innovation in introducing it into a wild population? So very shortly, I mean, essentially there's no risk.
2: If all the quality control of the process is done correctly, because our CAST-9 line is homozygous, guide line is homozygous, all the progeny will be trans heterozygous. They'll have one copy of CAST-9 and, and one copy of multiple guide early. But if they have it, so all the females will die during development and all the males will be completely sterilized. So essentially what we're releasing into the environment could not self-propagate. It's a dead end. Although it's technically referred as genetically modified organism, but it's not it cannot self-sustain. It's a it's a dead end. It's only purpose to find and mate with female, meaning with multiple females. And and that's it. But it could not pass any genes.
1: And you so this is only the F1s that are released then, not the parents that carry just either Cas9 or the guide RNA, just the F1.
2: Only F1s, yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. So that makes sense now because the F1s only can produce a sterile male that can potentially take up the space on many females. So that's a pretty good one. Plus this thing is invasive and it doesn't belong here. So that was my next question is, you know, does it have a role in ecology? Is it food for bats or something that it has some sort of ecological role that should be preserved? But I didn't realize that really, this was a very recent introduction that Probably doesn't have a whole lot of important role in ecology other than being a farm pest. I would say so. I
2: mean, of course, some crickets, maybe dragonflies will be happy to eat Drosophila, but there uh, are many other plants of Drosophila which can sustain the population of crickets or dragonflies. For mosquitoes, probably will be preferred target for dragonflies. So, Drosophila
1: Suzuki, it's a very recent invasive pest. And you mentioned some other insects that were being engineered with this kind of precision-guided sterile insect technique. What about the psyllids associated with citrus greening? Is that something on the radar?
2: Yeah, we still, I mean, we were thinking about it. In fact, in the lab of former Agbarek, who is a full professor at UC San Diego, we are trying to establish transgenesis of psyllid. Once we establish transgenesis, we can very easily port this technology. Because Precision Guided Sterling's technique, it's a, essentially it's a platform. It's only methodology. If we can make transgenic insects in one particular species, we know that Casline will most likely work because Casline works in bacteria, in, in humans, in all different organisms where it was tested. And the same goes about guide RNA. So it's just methodology.
1: It's once
2: we establish transgenesis, we can build PGSIT.
1: And you had mentioned that, you know, this is Cas9, it's guide RNAs. How hard is it to go through a regulatory process to be able to introduce these technologies into any given scenario? Because we really need this for the Asian citrus psyllid. We need this for the ambrosia beetle. We need this for a whole bunch of insects that are... Vectors of agricultural disease, and is this something that could potentially be deployed very quickly? We hope so. Perdue, it's
2: one company. They licensed the patent, precision-guided stereolectic group patent, and they're actually now running SDA tests of targeting Drosophila suzukii in, in Oregon in the in the greenhouses as a pest for blueberries. So they're already testing the system in Drosophila suzukii. We also, as I mentioned, we also build this system in Egypt, and we're very keen to start deploying it. And we are preparing application to EPA because mosquitoes are regulated as pesticide, and they belong to the EPA. Any kind of agricultural pest regulated by U.S. Department of Agriculture, and that's also under under that umbrella. So, but we're but going that route. We want to apply it as soon as possible because it... It's, it's scientifically very attractive idea. It works in the lab. We want to test it in the in, in actual environment.
1: Oh, very good. And I know that this work never happens in a vacuum. Who are some of the collaborators in the work? You mentioned Dr. Akbari, who are some of the other folks who are involved in making sure this could work?
2: Max Scott, who is a professor of North Carolina State University at Raleigh. And she also built a system, the other system, tetracycline response element system for Drosophil and Suzuki. So his lab was working also very hard, and they are collaborating with us on VGSIT. We also have collaborators from University of California Berkeley, who in the lab of John Marshall, they help us to model scenarios and to essentially use mathematics to figure out which currently available technology would be the most effective for a of insects.
1: Oh, really good. And is... There are any hints as to when this kind of thing may be available to the farmer or for widespread deployment. Is there any discussion of a time frame?
2: It is a discussion. We we, we got funding from a California cherry board to develop PGSAT and Drosophila Suzuki. And and again, AgraGene right now is doing some environmental tests with his technology. And once they do that test, we probably have to do a test, another one at a higher scale. And then we'll have to submit uh, data showing the efficacy of these methods to U.S. Department of Agriculture. And again, I also mentioned that we have a system in mosquitoes, and we ourselves also founded a company called Synvect. and we're also pushing very hard, trying to bring this technology into the field, and we are preparing an experimental use permit for the EPA to test this technology. But my understanding uh Oxitec was pioneering these genetically engineering solutions for mosquito control and were trying to go through a regulatory nightmare in the US over 15 years. And now they established the essentially regulatory path. And now we are following that path with our technology. And we hope once we do um, field trials, we'll gather our data, then we can submit data, efficacy data, back to EPA. And after that, if EPA is satisfied, they can essentially register our products. And then after that, we'll have to go to different states at the individual state level, also get some regulatory approval, and then the farmers can get access to it. But it's a relatively long process. The good thing, now that process was established, and primarily by Oxitin,
1: yeah, Oxitec did a great job with getting through it, and they were excellent with their public-facing side in terms of discussing what this technology is and how it can be beneficial. But still, there's so much pushback that's there that the only way we're going to get through it is to get people who listen to this podcast to really work for us. And, and, and when I say work for us, I'm saying work for the farmer and work for the broader scientific good of discussing this topic, write blogs, you know, get in social media and talk about the good things that can come from this kind of technology. Because to be honest, we really need it yesterday. And especially for the citrus psyllid, that would be revolutionary if we could crush the levels of that thing. It's the vector of the citrus greening disease that's destroying citrus industry in Florida and present now in California. So this is a really urgent thing to be able to integrate these new technologies so, if people wanted to learn more about this, is there a place that you could direct them online, like to a website or social media presence?
2: I mean, they can go and check Omar Gwaii Labs lab page at UC San Diego, Max
1: Gont lab, lab page at
2: North Carolina State Universities. Essentially, they can also Google my name or Omar Gwaii and see publications. There is also a Wikipedia page about Josophila Suzuki, which describes relatively up to date information about this past and, and some advances in coping with it.
1: No, very good. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Condul. When you have your next big breakthroughs, could you please be sure to let me know and let's talk about it here? Because this is an exciting twist on an old technique that really worked well before that now has been given the precision guiding of modern molecular biology. So thank you very much for joining me.
2: Thank you so much, Kevin.
1: And as always, thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. This is another amazing breakthrough that you should be sharing. Share it in social media. Talk to your friends about it. Talk about the ways in which we can limit the the impact of destructive insects that don't belong here in the first place. These are introduced and invasive species that cause tremendous damage in the fruit and vegetable industries. And now we have technologies that can eliminate them with very little risk and actually decreasing the use of pesticides and other impacts on the environment. So thank you very much for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week.
0: You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's Electronic Lab Notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at Calabra.app, C O L A B R A.app.